Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Six days ago, I woke up and I was a very low bass, and then I had no voice for about five days. And so I'm trying to conserve it all for this moment. I heard, I heard someone yell. That's great. Yeah. It was very quiet in our house the last few days. Um, my wife said, I don't know if you're mad at me or if you're not here, because all I could do is like sign language. Um, or I could whistle. I whistle for the kids and they would know, or, you know, like, hey, turn around, look at me and I'll try to to tell you what's going on. Um, but I am grateful. 39 years ago today, um, my mom gave birth to me in a small hospital in West Africa, in Yaounde, Cameroon. I'm, I am uh, Cameroon born, uh, Ohio raised. And so um, we are grateful. I'm grateful for my parents today, uh, for sure. 39 years of life uh, and, and just the godly heritage and what God has done in and through um, the people he's brought into my life these last 30 nine years. So I invite you as we have the spirit of Thanksgiving this morning, as we get ready for the week that we have ahead in our nation of celebrating Thanksgiving, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 100. We're hitting a pause for, for a week here on our Revelation series to look at an amazing psalm, a psalm that you might know um, from different parts of your life. Perhaps you memorized this as you were growing up. I remember memorizing this as a kid gathered around the dinner table. Uh, typically on Friday nights, our family would gather for a meal to begin the weekend together and we would say this psalm. And so what I wanna do this morning is I wanna look at the psalm and, and <coughs> Excuse me, sorry, my voice is still there. I want to look at this psalm and what God has to teach us through it about what it means to bless his name and to praise him and to give him thanks. This is a psalm of thanksgiving, um, the way it's translated there in the HCSB, a psalm of thanksgiving. And I want to invite you to stand with me. And I want to invite you for scripture reading this morning to repeat these words after me. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Joy to the Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful song. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us. And we are his. We are his people the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. For the Lord is And his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Psalm 100. Father, we bless your name. We thank you for the words of scripture that help teach us how to respond to you, to respond to your amazing grace 
Father, would you remind us of your presence here today with us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Sorry, I'm just going to try to adjust this a little bit. Psalm 100. So that rendition may not be what you have in your Bible. That is roughly what I learned many, many years ago. It's probably a combination of the King James and various translations that I've looked at throughout the years. What's an amazing psalm, and it's broken up a couple of different ways. We're going to look at that today. Um, but just a brief note about the psalms. The psalms are an amazing collection of poetry. And they're not just poetry. They're actually songs to be sung to the Lord. The word um, psalm comes from the word in Hebrew, tehillim. Can you say tehillim? Tehillim, and it means praise. So when we look at the psalms, we're looking at words of praise. Um, It's interesting, actually. The psalms are called, for example, the prayer book of Israel. They're compiled in five different sections corresponding, scholars think, to the five books of Moses or the Torah. You can see the breakdown there, 1 through 41, 42 through 72, 73, so on and so forth. Um, Not only that, the Psalms call forth worship and they employ song, voice, and instrument. Psalm 150, for example, praise the Lord, praise him in the highest heavens, praise him. And then you got the cymbals and the resounding cymbals and the trumpets and the flutes and the lyres. Sometimes it says to sing with your voice to God. Sometimes it says to cry out with your voice to God. These are composed. It's amazing. They're composed throughout about a thousand year period and they're compiled sometime, um, scholars think, after the Babylonian captivity, but they're composed of, by different people. People like David write Psalms. Asaph, Solomon, Moses, a guy by the name of Ethan, a guy by the name of He-Man. It sounds like it should be in a TV show or something like that. Um, or Korah's sons, the Levites. Then there's 43 unnamed Psalms. We don't know who they're written by, but these are songs of praise. These are songs of praise for the people of God in the ancient period that is ancient Israel. As they gather around the prayer book of Israel, these are, these are words that they would recite, words that they would not just want to know verbatim, they'd want to know down here. Some of these psalms are psalms that they sing as they go up to worship God in Jerusalem. Some of these psalms <coughs> are psalms that are written as laments, um, expressions of sorrow over sin. Expressions of grief in the midst of loss. There are psalms here that are written to express hope in the midst of despair. All these psalms have been not only a a word to the people of Israel long ago, but they've become a word to the people of God, to the church even now today, to help us give voice to the joys and the blessings and the frustrations and the loss in life. In fact, there's some psalms that, that deal directly with God, why is my adversary winning, right? Um, There's psalms that that cry out for justice in an unjust world. I love the psalms. I love the psalms. It's one thing to study them. It's another thing just to begin to sing them. Just begin to, 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 to give voice to what God is doing and has done. And Psalm 100 is one of those psalms. Um, this particular psalm can be structured two different ways. We're going to look at 
one of the structures for most of our time. And then I want to double back and look at another way we could structure this psalm. But here's one of the ways that we could look. Oh, I forgot to tell you. Heavy use of literary devices like parallelism, acrostic, chiasm, all that kind of stuff. Um, there's two ways we can look at Psalm 100 from a structural level. Here's one of the ways. You look and you see in the first couple verses there, you've got a bunch of imperatives. In fact, there are seven imperatives in Psalm 100. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship or serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful song. Know that the Lord is God. So we've got these imperatives, shout, serve, come, acknowledge. But these imperatives on what the people of God are supposed to do are followed by a reason for doing it. Verse three, uh, the latter part of that says, because he made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture, right? So there's a, here's what you do and here's why comes back again and does the same thing. Um, we come to enter his gates with thanksgiving. <coughs> um, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Praise his name. Those are our imperatives. Those are the imperatives given by the reader or by, by the writer. Why? Because Yahweh is good. His steadfast love, his chesed, his grace is eternal. He is always faithful to his people. So you could look at it structurally like this. You have an imperative, you have reasons. You have imperatives, you have reasons. That's one way we could look at the structure. But there's some incredible things buried deep within some of these words. We're not going to look at all of them in detail this morning. But I want to look at a couple of these commands. And, and as we look at commands, I want you to know the commands are not, the, the, the commands are responsive. It's because of God's initiative in your life and in mine that we are called to then shout and serve and come and acknowledge and enter and give thanks and praise, right? We don't come to do those things to earn something with God. The people of Israel, the people of God today, the church, we've never done anything to earn something with God. It's only been by his grace that you and I are here. It's only been because of his life that we have life. It's only because he gives me voice today. I actually have a voice today. But because of what God has done, these reasons, this is what the psalmist, through the inspiration of God's spirit in Holy Scripture, calls us to walk in a certain kind of way. These are responsive kind of ways. And, and, and I want to structure it like this. The psalmist, I think, is most importantly concerned with one thing. God. God himself. I, I like, I'll give you a quote in a few minutes here, but the phrase is used that we are gripped by his presence because it's really easy to do something and miss the point altogether. And for the psalmist, the point is always God himself to, to, to grow in this relationship, to be gripped by the presence of God. So I want to look at this. This is a worship psalm. It's a Thanksgiving psalm. And this first word here, um, I, I want to say, it says to, to shout for joy or shout triumphantly to the Lord, all the earth. Th this idea of shout has to do with a war cry. All right. It, it, I won't do it this morning. I'd probably lose the rest of my voice if I tried to. It's this war cry because there's been victory. It's this war cry because God has triumphed. Shout for joy. For why? To the Lord. So it's not just shouting for joy for the glory of me, for the shouting of joy for the glory of your favorite team, which will be a great game next week, by the way. Sorry, I told you I was Ohio raised, didn't I? Um, it's going to be a great game. It's not shouting for joy for those reasons. It's shouting for joy, 
triumphantly to the Lord. To the Lord. All the earth. This idea of shouting, this war cry, is the reason for such joy is not based upon the people's work, but it's based upon the provision of God himself in their life. This, this um, word for Lord here, you'll notice in your text is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Shout for joy to Yahweh, to the Lord, all the earth. This is a, the divine name of God. It's used uniquely by the people of God. It's given um, when God discloses himself to Israel. And it's an intimate kind of name. He's not just God. He's a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. I love the way that my friend George likes to describe this particular name of God. I'll adapt it for myself. Um, many of you call me Jeremy or Pastor Jeremy or Pastor Cobb or whatever. Uh, you, get the, you get the telemarkers that say, is Mr. Jeremy D. Cobb there? And like, no, he's not. Um, <laughs> I always say no. Um, there's a lot of things I can be called in this world. There's only three people on earth who can call me dad. It's a name of intimacy. It's a name of covenant fellowship. It's a unique name. It's kind of like that with the name of Yahweh. This is God coming down and saying to his people, I am Yahweh, your God. We have this kind of intimacy with God because of his redemptive work. Shout for joy to Yahweh, all the earth. Some scholars think that all the earth here has to do with literally all the earth. Um, other scholars understand that phrase um, to be referring more to the, to the particular call for the people of Israel who have entered this covenant relationship with God. I think perhaps it's best to see this, this expression as um, worship or shouting that can only be properly engaged after you become a follower of Yahweh. Because that's clearly what's in view here. Shout for joy to Yahweh all the earth. To the rest of the nations, it's that God. But to the people of God, it's he is our God. The gracious and compassionate God. The one who is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Because that's who God has revealed himself to be to this people. To the people of God. So it's this call. All, all the earth come into relationship with God, become a follower of Yahweh. And what, what I want you to notice here too is with this shout for joy and shout triumphantly and serving the Lord and coming before him, this isn't, <coughs> this isn't <clears throat> just going through the motions. <clears throat> this isn't just going through the motions. The psalmist does nev never green lights faking a relationship with God. I don't know if you've ever come into a place of worship and been like, wow, I'm here physically, but my heart is not here. The kind of worship that God invites you and I into is one where we are fully present. In fact, I remember as a, as a young worship student at Cedarville University, I was at my home church one weekend and I was really having a challenging time engaging with, um, with the music and with the liturgy. I grew up in a very high church, a lot of Bach and Beethoven and Brahms and classical music and choral and handbells and all that kind of stuff, which is great. I, there's nothing wrong with that. That can be used incredibly to lead people into the throne room of God. Um, but I was having a hard time that day. And I remember 
being very critical in my spirit. You may have not known it by looking at my face, but I was, I was judging the, I was judging the, the handbell playing and I was judging the, the offertory chorale and I was going, oh man, if I were designing this, cause right, I was a worship major. If I were designing this, I would have done X, Y, and Z differently. And in the middle of that moment, God broke through a very calloused heart that morning and said, it's not about you. It's not about you. Because worship is never about you and me. Shout for joy to the Lord, to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful song. This phrase to serve, in Hebrew, it's the word avad. Can you say avad? Avad, thank you. Uh, it means to work. It means to serve. It means to honor. It can also mean to worship. So we can understand this, serve the Lord with gladness. Your translation might say, worship the Lord with gladness. You could translate this, honor the Lord with gladness. You could translate this, work to the Lord with gladness. Because while this psalm is calling likely worshipers into the courtroom of the temple, <clears throat> a biblical picture of worship understands that our avenue, our, our, the place where we worship God is not just in the building. It's where you go every single day of your life. You go, you work at Gentex, guess what you're called to do? Worship the Lord. Maybe you're a physician or a nurse and you work in the medical industry. What do you do when you go there? You worship the Lord. You go into a school to teach. You wake up that morning to teach your kids. What are you called to do? Worship the Lord with gladness. Every bit of your being and my being, God desires to reflect his glory and his grace. Paul puts it this way in the New Testament. He says, whatever you do in word or deed, do in the name of the Lord Jesus. There is no part of our life that God ever intends to not be part of our avad, our work, our service, our worship, our honor before him. The psalmist also says here how God is to be served, worked, and worshiped, right? With joy or with gladness. Now, I, I love it because <clears throat> this becomes something that is very dependent upon God's working in and through me. Because joy is not a natural expression of our own striving after God. It's an expression of God's working in us. In fact, joy is a fruit of God's spirit. You and I cannot manufacture true legitimate joy. We can only yield to the Father who by the spirit brings forth joy in our lives. I like how one um, couple of professors write it this way. They say joy is not an external plumage. It's not, it's not a feather or something like that. It's not an external plumage required of those who want to come into God's presence but rather joy wells upward from within. It is the emotion that the Lord draws out of human beings when they are gripped by the divine presence. It's the emotion that the Lord draws out of us when we're gripped 
by the divine presence. The thanklessness, he says, the negativity, the hopelessness of the world are transformed by the redemptive power of God's presence. To shout for joy all, to the Lord, all the earth, to worship the Lord with gladness, to come before him with joyful song depends on this partnership that we have with God, this, this teaming together with knowing who he is and walking in his strengths. Have you been gripped by God lately? Seriously, have you been gripped to the core by God lately in your life? Or has worship become something that goes through the motions? He says, come before him, in verse 2, with joyful songs. God's people are not to remain distant from God. In fact, as the writer of Hebrews says, he says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are yet without sin. And as a result, the writer says, therefore let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace and help at the proper time. The worship of God is never meant to be distant from God. In the Old Testament times, the people of God, the Israelites that would come up and, and God's presence for a good chunk of the Old Testament dwelled within either the tabernacle or it dwelt within the temple. And they would have certain places that they could go depending on whether they were a priest or a Levite or a man or a woman or even a Gentile. There are certain courts in the ancient time where you could go and you couldn't go as part of the worship prescribed by God. What God is saying here is that through Jesus' death and resurrection, all of those things have been leveled that we might, as his children, come before the throne of grace with boldness. Have you come before the throne of grace with boldness yet today? Have you entered his presence recognizing that he's already here with you? In fact, when Paul says... Um, you are the temple of God's spirit in the New Testament. When he says that, he's referring actually to a very specific place. The, the presence of God dwelt in the Holy of Holies in, in the tabernacle. And when Paul says you are the temple, it's the word there. You are the Holy of Holies for God himself. Wherever you've come from this week, if you're a follower of Jesus, guess what? God dwells with you. Through his spirit, it's a permanent indwelling. He is with you always, always. And we can come before his throne. In fact, we are called to come before his throne with boldness, not because we've earned something, but because God has met us with grace. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. I, I love this phrase here. Know that Yahweh is God or acknowledge that Yahweh is God. One writer puts it, acknowledge that Yahweh is God and that no one else is. 
Because in, in general, what the Bible is written to address is not whether there is a God, because that was assumed by people. It's written to address which God do you serve? And here in the Psalms and throughout the scripture, it says, worship the one and only God. Acknowledge, know that Yahweh is God and there is no one else who is God. The psalmist says, but then he gives a reason. And, and <coughs> this word for knowledge here or acknowledge or know, it's an intimate word. It's to know personally. It's to know in a very tangible sense. Not to know with data, but to know through deep relationship. Know that Yahweh is God. Why? Because he made us. God started this story in your life. He made us. We are his, the psalmist writes. But not just that. He gives another little descriptor that the ancient people of Israel understood. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. The, the Israelites were a very agrarian kind of people. It's such that even like their kings, like David, he was a shepherd. He knows what it means to care and to nourish and protect and to guard against the things that would come against sheep. And here the psalmist says, we are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. David writes, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. But that's not where the shepherd metaphor ends. We could go to a number of places, but most notably in the Gospel of John, <clears throat> which we've just finished reading over the last couple of weeks together, those of you who are joining us in the journey through the Bible this year, um, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. He describes himself to be a shepherd. And not a bad shepherd, because you can have good shepherds and bad shepherds, but to be a good shepherd. Why? Because he lays down his life for the sheep. He nourishes them. He protects them. He ensures that they have all that they need. Not necessarily all they want, but all they need, because a good shepherd knows exactly what his sheep need. Know intimately that Yahweh is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. I remember talking about sheep sometime later or earlier this year. And I said probably something like this. Sheep are kind of dumb, right? And I had a great story from one of my friends, one of my young friends over here who has sheep of a sheep that they have who did something that was kind of dumb. It strikes me though, sheep may be dumb, but they're meant to be dependent. Are you dependent on the Father today? Because that's the picture. We have to know that Yahweh is God, to be in relationship with him, because there's no other way we can have our true needs met. Dependency on God is not a bad thing. In fact, it's the place where power and joy and rest actually meet. We are his people the sheep of his pasture. We come to this next phrase, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, praise his name. Why? Because he is good. His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. We, we are called to enter his gates with thanksgiving. We're called to, to come before him and declare how good and how great he is. 
We're called to look at the circumstances of our life wherever they've been this last week and say, God, you've met me here and here and here and here. The the rabbis um, had a practice that went on during, I think it's the second temple period, where they would they would try to bless God or to thank God a hundred times a day. If you were to begin your day and start to bless God, say, God, we we bless you for this and for this and for this and for this, a hundred, a hundred. Be a great practice to cultivate. And even if you don't get to a hundred, that's okay. But the practice of gratitude reminds us of who God is and what God has done. The more we remind ourselves of that, the more I find worry and anxiety and frustration and thanklessness. They just kind of begin to float away because again, we're gripped by God. We're gripped by his presence. We're gripped by his care. But notice what it says here. We enter and worship. We give thanks. We praise his name. Why? Because he is good. (coughs) Goodness is an essential characteristic of God. He's a compassionate and gracious God. He's slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He's good. At, at the very center of who he is, he is good. Now, now we might say, um, yeah, that, that meal was good. The idea here behind good is everything we need in perfect balance. When God creates the world, first day comes and goes, and he says it's good. Second day comes and goes, he says it's good. Third day, fourth day, comes to the very end. He makes, makes man and woman on, on day six, and he says this is very good. This is good as defined by God, not as defined by my own sense of good, but good as defined by the one who meets every single need we have in perfect grace. The one who walks us through valleys, the one who rejoices with us when we're rejoices, when we're rejoicing, the one who weeps with us when we weep, the one who nourishes, guides, and protects, the one who is good. For Yahweh is good, it says, and his love endures forever. <coughs> this word for love here is, is, a, is an amazing word. His love endures forever. The word there for love is the word chesed. Here it is in Hebrew and the English. And it means loyal love. It means faithfulness. It can mean graciousness. Um, It's this picture of, of receiving kindness to the undeserving. That's the way one scholar puts it. It's the word that David uses after he's messed up and he's sinned by committing adultery with Bathsheba and he's called on the carpet by one of the prophets of God. In Psalm 51, he says in this confession, he says, be gracious to me, God, according to your chesed, your love, your loyal love, your steadfast love. Because David realizes that he's majorly messed up and his hope can never be in his own goodness. It'll never be in his own goodness that he can be somehow reconciled with God. There's no sacrifice, even in the ancient time, that was sufficient for his sin. He could only throw himself on God in his mercy. There's no sacrifice 
that can make you and I right with God except for one. And that's the work of Jesus' death and his resurrection. The once for all perfect, sinless, spotless lamb, who, lamb of God who died for the sins of the world, who stood in our place to not just cover sin, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's the only sacrifice that is effective, efficacious, big word for the day. And it only comes to us through God in his chesed, his steadfast love. This love, this grace that extends kindness to the undeserving. The word that the RSV translates for this um, includes the idea, this is their commentary on, on the idea of chesed, it the, includes the idea of love and devotion and a faithfulness to a promise or to a covenant. In other words, <clears throat> when God, when used to describe God, its emphasis is on God's faithfulness to his covenant with his people, his promise to be their God always, to protect them, to care for them, and it describes his special feeling for his people. But in scripture, I love it because um, many times this word chesed is tied with another word. This word is faithfulness or emunah. Faithfulness here means um, in the sense of integrity, trustworthiness, and dependability. Faithfulness, trustworthiness, and dependability. I, I've read a story earlier this week, and it's a story about a, a ship that was going out to sea. And there was a captain uh, of the ship who was, was uh, in charge of all the things. Because the captain is always in charge of the entire ship. He's always responsible for everything. And he'd brought his family on this voyage with him. And for the couple days they were out there, they, they, they hit some really bad weather. And this is kind of the idea of faithfulness. This is the idea of trust in someone. <clears throat> they hit some bad weather. Everybody's kind of scrambling around, trying to make sure that everything is okay. And um, his young daughter was down below deck. And um, her mom, the captain's wife, comes down to, um, to check on her, to say, are, are you okay? And, and, and everybody's kind of freaking out because the storm was kind of getting bad. Um, and the girl wakes up from her sleep in this time. And, and her mom's checking in with her. And the girl says, is father up on deck? And her mother said, well, of course your father's up on deck. You know, it's, it's a storm. Of course he's going to be up there. As the story goes, the girl turned around and went back to sleep. Because she knew her father was on deck and things would be okay. The, the sense of faithfulness, trustworthiness, dependability that the psalmist describes God with means that we can go to God and we can know all I have needed, your hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. And so this, the psalm calls forth this praise. And it's not, just, um, it's not just praise in a vacuum. It's praise because when we look at who God is and we look at what God has done, we can say, yeah, God has met me there and God has met me there and God has been faithful and his steadfast love, his grace has been enduring. And it becomes something where all these commands aren't just like 
commands, go do it. They are in Hebrew, they're commands, go do it. But they have, they have meat to them because the person who knows that Yahweh is God, that his grace is good, that he gets faithful, can say in the midst of a storm through the working of God in their life, yeah, my father is in control. Enters gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise, give thanks to him. Praise his name for Yahweh's good. His love endures forever. His love is eternal. His faithfulness continues through all generations. I, I told you that there's one way to look at this. We've got imperatives, and here's a reason why. Imperatives, here's a reason why. That's a great structure for this psalm. Um, another structure for this psalm that I think is helpful for us, both of these come from the same scholar who likes them both, <coughs> is this. What we have here also in, in this is a, is a word called chiasm. And chiasm is a literary term, and it's structured this way. Here's another way we could look at the psalm. We have a triple imperative call to worship. Shout. What are they? Shout for joy to the Lord. All these. Serve the Lord's gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. And then we have three triple imperatives at the end. Enter his gates, give thanks, and praise his name. And in the center, and this is what chiasms do, is they, 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 they take a number and, and many times the point of the whole psalm or the point of the whole poem is right in the center line. And it's this. He says, triple imperative, triple imperative, but in the center here contains for us the point of the psalm. The central call to know that the Lord... Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, he is the true God. He is the true God. And, and, I, and I like this because the point of thanksgiving is not to watch whether or not the lines are going to lose or win. We all know how that's going to happen, right? I guess maybe we don't. Um, the, the point of thanksgiving is not just to gather together with family. The, the point of thanksgiving is not to eat way too much food. The point of thanksgiving is not for us. The point of thanksgiving is for us to be reminded that we are called to know that he is God, this intimate relationship with him, that he is the true God and that we are his. Are you gods today? Have you been gripped by his presence? Have you learned what it means are you learning? I guess I don't know that we ever have fully learned. Are you learning what it means that he is a God who nourishes, guides, and protects you because he's your shepherd? If you're not a follower of Jesus, I invite you today to turn to the one, the only one who can bring you life. Life in the world to come, but life here today. Jesus says in the gospel, John, I have come that they may have a life and have it to the full. That's his invitation to you today. And you can become a follower of Jesus by trusting in his work and not your own. By believing that Jesus, um, the book of Romans says it this way, by confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing that God raised him from the dead. Scripture says you will have eternal life. Because by doing that, you're saying, man, there's no way I can come before God in my own strength. There's no way I can make this up on my own. There's no way I can fill in my own gaps of power and knowledge and wisdom. I need a shepherd. That's my invitation to you today. If you're not a follower of Jesus, 
you're a follower of Jesus, a couple more invitations for you today as we begin to close. The first one is this. During this season, we need to start with the right perspective. Let's lean into thanksgiving by leaning into thankfulness. Some of us look at life as glass half full, others glass half empty. Um, But gratitude is not minimizing or dismissing the circumstances of life. It's remembering that our God is with us. He's with us today. He's with us tomorrow. He's with us as we go through this week. (coughs) We may not always understand But God's goodness reminds us that he is trustworthy. And the first step of correcting our perspective is to be gripped by his presence. And my friends, today we can go before him boldly because he cares for you. We can go before him boldly because he longs to meet your need. We can go before him boldly with our hurt, with our pain, with our joy, with our sorrow, with with all the things that life brings us. Because the point of this is to learn to know that the Lord, he is the true God and that we are his. So lean into thankfulness this week by starting with the correct perspective. The second one is to practice gratitude. I told you earlier, the rabbi sought to bless God for a hundred things every day. If we stop and we slow down, this can be a very helpful practice in getting our minds, but most importantly, our hearts back on the right track. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. And the third thing is this, um, be contagious with your gratitude. How do you think your family, your coworkers, your friends might respond if you practice gratitude in a very dynamic way? If you legitimately, I'm not calling you to, to faking through the motions here today. You know, Jesus actually talks about the Pharisees and he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. God doesn't just want the praise of your lips. He wants what's here. He wants all of you. But what would your life look like? What would your testimony look like? How might God use a heart that's growing in gratitude? I think in a world where negativity is a norm, gratitude would be an incredible, not only breath of fresh air, but an incredible testimony to a God who has met us in our need. Because the point of gratitude is not just, here's what I got. It's, here's who God has been in my life. Here's how I've been gripped by God's presence this week. Here's how I have been walking with God in a very dynamic way. What would your life look like if you're contagious with your gratitude? The key to contagious gratitude by the way, is making God the very center of it. Making God the absolute very center of it. Uh, Last week, I I encouraged us to be praying for three people in our life who do not know Jesus as, as we go towards this Christmas season and be praying that they would come to faith, be praying that God would use us and lead us and guide us to speak 
the word of truth in, in their life. I was so encouraged last week. I was talking with one of our um, student ministry small group leaders, and they were talking about this last Sunday night at their small group. They were, they were talking about how, like, who God had placed within their life and what that means. Who's God placed within your life? Who can you be praying for this week that your spirit of gratitude, genuine gratitude, worship team, you guys can come up, <clears throat> that your spirit of gratitude would be maybe one of those catalysts for them to not be amazed by what God has done for you, but just be amazed by God himself. Be praying for those three. Be praying for those three. And if you don't have people in your life who are followers of Jesus, then be praying for people to come into your life, for God to make divine appointments for you, to talk with people who are not followers of Jesus. Earlier this year, I was talking to a friend of mine, and they were at the hospital for a procedure, and, and just on a whim, God brought someone into their life through whom God wanted to minister through him to that person. Never be surprised when God brings someone our way who's in desperate need of the best news of all, that Jesus brings life. Pray with me, please. Today, thank you for giving us strength, for giving us life. God, I thank you for a voice for a few moments here. And as we enter into this week, God, would you cause us to be reminded constantly about who you are and what you've done for us? God, would you, as the psalmist writes, would you lead us in paths of righteousness for your namesake? With the, with the highs and the lows we experience in life, God, May we walk knowing that you are with us because you are. May we walk being gripped by your presence, God. May we, may we remember that you are you're good. <coughs> you are in control of the events of our world. And God, one day you will set all the wrong things right. But in this meantime, God, we can trust you because you are good. Use our lives this week, God, to further your kingdom and to bring you, you glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.